Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings. Second Kings chapter 5. We are starting a new series today. And uh, we'll probably uh, be looking uh, at this conversation over the next six or seven weeks. And uh, the series is uh, Great Questions of the Bible that we all must answer. Great questions of the Bible that we all must answer. Over the next several weeks, I'm hoping that we will be challenged to answer questions such as, am I obedient? Am I repentant? Am I committed? Am I serving? Am I faithful? Are my priorities right? And am I prepared for Christ or for the return of Christ? These are questions that you have to ask yourself and you have to answer in accordance with the Word of God. Uh, It's my belief uh, that we can look at these several passages over the next few weeks and see these questions. Today, of course, the question will be, have I been obedient to the Word of God, or am I obedient to the Word of God? And I believe you'll see a good representation of that with this passage. Uh, If you're there at 2 Kings chapter 5, would you stand with me, reverence of the reading of God's Word? We're actually going to be looking through the first 14 verses. We're just going to read together to begin with these first three verses. And then we'll say a few words and open in prayer. And then look at the passage. 2 Kings 5, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable. Because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. And he was also a mighty man. In valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out and by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. As we look over these next several weeks at some of these questions, and we've not seen it here in this passage, but we will momentarily, I'm hoping that and praying that the Lord will lead you to apply these questions directly to your own life so that you may, in your own mind, have a real conversation with the Lord. And have real answers that result concerning your position or where you are in your walk with Christ. I believe that these 
questions apply to us each and all. That is, whether you are saved and serving, saved and sliding, saved and hiding, or lost and searching, these questions can speak to you. I hope that as we look through these specific characters, some of which you'll know and some of which maybe you've not heard of, that you'll understand that they're each one in the canon. They're there for our example. There's a purpose in them being here. And that you would look for commonality. I hope that not only today, but as we move over these next several weeks, that you would be praying and asking God to speak directly to you. Because the result of such a conversation could be revival. And revival is what our nation and our communities need. And revival always starts in the body of Christ. Would you pray with me this morning and ask the Lord to speak to you? Father, we love you and we thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, we're grateful for the freedoms that we are given to worship and to praise and to gather. Lord, I pray today as we consider this idea of obedience that, God, you would show us in the simplicity of this passage our need and obedience. That, Lord, we would be challenged, that we would be convicted, Father, by none other than your blessed Holy Spirit who is present. Lord, we pray that he would have full liberty to move among us and to work in our hearts and our lives. And God, we pray that as we leave today, we would walk differently than when we first came. Lord, I love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The character that, that we're going to look at this week in this passage is this individual, Naaman. And I don't know, I haven't done a survey, I don't know how familiar he is to everyone. But this much I do know, he is a trophy of God's grace. We'll see not once but twice in this passage where a servant, a slave, a captive of Naaman is used by the hand of God to direct him towards the reception of grace. There's likely a sermon in that in and of itself. I want you to consider first as we just work our way towards this question that I believe is so challenging as it has lighted upon me this week. I want you to think about this person, Naaman. I want you to consider his character. And we're given uh, some information about him in verse 1 that is pretty extensive. It, it talks in verse 1 about uh, his, his rank among men. He is the captain of the host of the king of Syria. This means that he was uh, successful. He was uh, someone who was known. He was someone who was 
uh, honored. He was someone who was followed. Not only his rank among men, but notice that he was a great man with his master and honorable. That speaking of the king of Syria, he had the respect of his master. It also says that he had that respect because by him the Lord had given deliverance in a time of battle. And so he also had this reputation in battle of being someone who could get the job done, so to speak. And as we think about the character of Naaman, we, we would just come to this simple conclusion that as we would describe men and women, he's a good man. He's somebody that, that you would uh, value, somebody that you would want uh, to be around, someone who had achieved much in this life. He was accomplished. He was accepted. Now look, I don't want to paint the wrong picture for you. He's a Syrian warrior. Literally killed probably hundreds of Israeli soldiers. Reportedly, historically, is known in this light for the, for the death of one of the Israel kings, probably Ahab. And that's why it was so valued. But what I want you to recognize is that in his society, he was a good man. He had good character. He also was a man of courage. Look at his courage. It says there in that same verse, he was a mighty man in valor. It, it, this, this idea of valor carries with it not just bravery, but great courage in the face of danger, especially battle. So he would be considered, this guy, Naaman, would be considered fearless. He would be considered dauntless, heroic, uh, showing great fortitude. In, in his culture, he was a special person. But then at the same time, he was not special because in the same verse, it gives probably the greatest indication that we need to know about Naaman. Notice his condition. He's a leper. Now, leprosy is a grotesque disease. It's not something that you and I are terribly familiar with, but in that day, they were very familiar with it. With, with leprosy, uh, there would be a, a picture or a person who was obviously sick. See, those in Syria in that day, as they would think about Naaman or speak about Naaman, they would say, look, there's Naaman. You know, he's the captain. You know, he's the guy that the king loves because he's the guy that killed the other king. You know Naaman, he's a mighty man of valor. Oh, by the way, he's got leprosy. Everyone would have known it. It wouldn't have been hidden. It couldn't be hidden for long. It would show. There would be obvious problems from that. He was obviously sick. Not only that, but because of the leprosy and because of the time in which he lived, he was incurably sick. Now we look through the scriptures and we see a lot about leprosy, which I want to speak about in a moment. But, but we also see a, a few people healed from leprosy. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, simply by speaking, healed many, ten at one time. There were some, Miriam at one time had leprosy and God healed her. Moses at one time, uh, just to show the power of God, his hand was leprous and God healed that. But this is the point. It was a miraculous thing. If you got leprosy, it was considered incurable. If it went into remission or you were cured, it was miraculous. So here's Naaman. He's obviously sick. He's incurably sick. And because of the idea that he's incurably sick, he is terminally sick. It's another very important factor about leprosy. In, in his day, leprosy typically resulted in the death of its host. It would not only cause great sores and, and it would cause uh, skin to fall off and it would cause uh, other uh, maladies associated with that that are just too gross to talk about. It would also cause a co contorting of the joints and it would be disabling and it would be disfiguring and it would, it would disable their voice. It would get into their vocal cords and it would change the way they spoke. It would consume its host. Not only would it consume them, but after a period of time, uh, they would be separated from everyone else except for others who had leprosy. And they would be colonized, and they would be isolated, and they would lose all of their relationships, their family and their friends, and all of the normalcy of life would be consumed with this dreaded disease that was for all intents and purposes a death sentence. And it would be a lonely death and a separated death and a grotesque death and a very painful existence. But when it says he has leprosy, it says a lot. This is the point about leprosy. Leprosy is a picture of sin. It's begun way early in the Old Testament Showing leprosy as a type of, or a picture of, or an example of sin. Indeed, uh, many diseases and maladies throughout the scriptures are. When we think of the, the healings that the Lord Jesus Christ would perform, when he would touch someone's blinded eyes so they could see, that was more than a physical restoration of sight. It was meant to typify a spiritual restoration of sight so that they could see themselves in the light of God. When he would restore the deaf, that was a picture of them developing ears to hear the truth that would save them. When he would touch their tongue and cure the dumb, that would be a picture of them having a voice now to speak the truths of God and to share the gospel. When he would touch their crippled body, it would show that they were no longer captive of sin, but now they were free and liberated by the touch of Christ. And so diseases throughout the scriptures have this picture of sin that oftentimes we overlook, but leprosy, oh, it's such a clear picture of sin. Leprosy starts on the inside before it ever shows itself as a sore, it's inside. 
and it's insidious and it is spreading and it's doing its work. And by the time it shows itself, it's much worse than just that one sore. That's how sin is. Sin begins as an inside job and it grows and festers until it is seen by everyone. Leprosy would isolate and separate its victims and even causing them to cling together as a leper's colony, which was a, a way for them to be with their own type, but not of their own choosing. Sin does the same thing. Sin isolates people. Your sin that gets into your life and creeps throughout you like so much yeast infecting the dough and it goes until it infects the whole lot. And then when it shows itself, you'll find yourself only comforted around people with a similar problem. And it's not of your own choosing. It is that you're in bondage to the sin. When someone had leprosy, they were considered unclean. Those who are either guilty of the sin of unbelief or that one who is born again and has unconfessed sin in their life, they're unclean in God's eyes. First John teaches us that we've had a broken fellowship. When we think about leprosy, the leper could not heal himself. It wasn't something that he could stop doing or start doing that would end the malady of leprosy. It could only be healed by a touch of God. And many times the sinner can only be touched by God to be healed. We certainly can't heal ourselves or make ourselves whole. The leper could not go to the priest. When the leper was confirmed a leper, the only way he could be in the presence of the priest is if the priest came to him. Can I tell you that the sinner cannot approach the throne of grace. We're not worthy. It can come to us. Christ can come to us. There's such a strong picture in this idea of leprosy. Many would say that leprosy looks primarily like the sin of unbelief. I want to take just a couple of seconds and define that. For many years, you've heard people talk about the need for salvation. And you've heard a pastor stand up and say that if you are lost and, and you want to be saved, you need to come down and confess your sins. Well, I want to refine that a little bit and I, uh, this is where I'm at. And I, I hope that uh, we're all together. In your lost estate, there's only one sin that you can repent of. It's the sin of unbelief. When you're lost... And the Holy Spirit moves on you and draws you because you've heard the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is drawing you to the gospel. The repentance is to repent of unbelief. And so many would say that this leprosy looks like the sin of unbelief. Because 
as long as that leprosy is in the life of that person, as long as unbelief is in the life of that person, it is a death sentence. It is the sin that kills. It's the sin that will separate eternally from God. It's that sin that will do uh, so much trouble. And in the same way with unbelief, when we repent, that's when we become born again. This is, this is the picture that you need to, to get though. With a leper, when, when the leper would, would be healed, their skin would be like brand new. It would be restored. That's what happens when you repent of unbelief. Old things are passed away and all things become new. There's a, there's a brand new start. There's a brand new you. There's a brand new opportunity. But there's also in leprosy a picture or a typical view of sin that would speak to the believer with unconfessed sin in their life. See, it's very clear to see that unbelief as a problem, but it's not as clear to see unconfessed sin in the life of a believer. But it's, it's there because it would speak to the believer who has that unconfessed sin. That sin that in the life of the believer starts as unknown and unseen. But left to its own, it will, even though it's very small, it is infectious and it will spread and it will eventually reveal itself. And by the time that sin shows itself, that believer is much more, uh, in much more trouble than we would first imagine. Because that sin has been present for some time. When it reveals itself... And even before, it creates a separation between the believer and God. And though it can never take away eternal life, because we are secure in that, it can make this life miserable. And it can make this existence feel like we are languishing away from the Father and away from other believers. Because that sin has spread throughout our life like leprosy. It's a sickness, this sin is, that is terminal. It is incurable apart from repentance and the grace of God. And this is maybe the most painful part for me as I thought about it this week. It ought to be obvious. We said that Naaman was obviously sick. They knew he had leprosy. There was no hiding it. And we would think that as believers come together on Sunday and, and on Sunday night and on Wednesday and in, in Sunday school and we are communing together that if there is sin in another believer's life, we would think that it would be obvious. But this is the problem. It's not obvious because the other believers in the group have sin in their life as well. And it's like a little leper's colony. And they're there in that group of people, which is where they feel most comfortable, but it's not a group of their choosing. 
And it becomes a relationship of convenience wherein I know you're saved and you know I'm saved. But I know that you've got sin in your life and you know that I've got sin in my life. And I won't mention yours if you don't mention mine. We can just get along, but we're isolated from the power and the presence of God. It's like a little leper's colony. You don't mention mine and I won't mention yours. Look at, turn over to verse 9. To, to segue from verse 3 to verse 9, uh, Naaman goes and tells the king of Syria, hey, uh, this little maid that I've got said there's a guy in Samaria that can heal me. And the king says, well, go, go get healed. In fact, it's interesting because the king actually sent him to the king of Israel to be healed, causing quite a panic. Because the king of Israel is thinking, man, I can't heal you. And you're a Syrian warrior. But Elijah heard. And in verse 9 we have, excuse me, Elisha. And in verse 9 we have Naaman coming to Elisha. I want you to use as much color that you have in your imagination and envision the spectacle here. Look at verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth. And he went away and he said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not uh, Abana and Farfar rivers of Damascus better than all of the water of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in anger. I want you to pick up here. Uh, this is Naaman's conceit. Uh, I want you to know right here. I don't want to hurt your feelings. But I could, I could put my name there. Corey's conceit. And you could put your name there. This is how Naaman presented himself to the man of God. For healing. He presented himself first in power and pomp. Naaman came with his horses, in his chariot, and with his entourage, and presents himself in power and pomp. Then uh, we also notice that he expected personal attention and a showy performance. And we also know that he came in disgust with no real expectations because immediately he said, Damascus is better than Israel. I could have just stayed there. And we see that he left angry and unclean. All of that is very self-explanatory. What, what I want you to see though, the greater implication is in type. Because I want you to consider for a moment is, not, is that not how we present ourselves to God? In conceit. And in all of our power 
in disgust with no real expectation and we leave angry when God doesn't do anything for us. It's a, it's a pretty clear picture. It's, it's the idea that, that we would attend a certain location and, and we expect the man of God or truly God himself to be gracious and accommodating and we're looking for a brilliant display of power, you know, something that's fit for our spectacular needs. But if the truth is known, we're, we're filled with doubt and therefore we have very small or no faith or expectations at all. And more often than not, if the problem is directly addressed, we leave angry believing that hypocrisy has been perpetrated. As, I, as I've considered this over this last week, and by the way, uh, I'm completely implicated right here, so don't be feeling as if I'm speaking to you. I, I thought about this, this example. Let's just consider, let's, let's suppose that I have, uh, or had, uh, let's don't make it too real. <laughs> uh, it just suppose that I had an undisclosed illness, something that I hadn't revealed to anyone Something that I was ashamed of or afraid of or worried about. And, and so finally under duress, I break down and I decide I'm going to go see a doctor. But I make the appointment under false pretense. Because I'm ashamed and afraid to admit what's really going on. And so I go to the doctor under these false pretenses, just hoping that by some miracle, maybe I'll have the courage to, to really say what's going on or, or maybe just something good will happen. And, and once I arrive, the receptionist hands me a publication that that doctor produces every week. And I open it up and the primary writing in there is about what's wrong with me. And then the nurse comes and checks me in. And, and while she's checking me in, she asks questions about my health that all of a sudden just kind of uncover the things that are going on in my life. And then uh, after that, the doctor comes in and just by performing his typical duties, he gets to the root of my true concerns and he offers a treatment that could cure me. If that happened, I would be ecstatic. You would be ecstatic. We would say to, to church on Wednesday night, I have a praise. The hand of God was present at my doctor's appointment. And, and this has been taking place. But can I tell you, in the same manner, it is not uncommon for a person to have a deep-seated, well-hidden spiritual problem. It is not uncommon for that person to attend a church service basically hoping that through a process of osmosis they will be healed. Because they never admit or confess or repent what is happening. And when they arrive, the bulletin announces a, a sermon series that is in line with their problem. And immediately, immediately, they're suspicious. Then the choir and the choir director gets up and, and they lead worship and they perform beautifully and they sing songs that seem to be aimed at the issues at, at, at hand and they work to open the heart 
to a need for help, and now this person is absolutely confident somebody's been talking about them. And then the pastor stands up and opens the Bible to a passage of Scripture that they've heard all their life. And he introduces a sermon series that he's been working on for a month. And he preaches a sermon that he wrote two weeks ago. And it preaches directly to the problem. He's never met him. He's never had a conversation with him. And they leave upset believing the pastor was meddling. Or believing that they had been uh, misled or hypocrisy or something worse has taken place. Now what I just described to you has not happened to me lately, but it has happened before. Can I tell you why that is? It's the same problem that Naaman had. The greatest obstacle that we face to overcome is the obstacle of self. It's the obstacle of self. I want you to look here. We're going to see the question. Finally, after much ado, we come to the question. Look at verse 13. Naaman's mad. He's left. He's riding away, still with leprosy. And notice this servant. His servants come near and spake unto him, they said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? But rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. This is what the servant says, uh, Captain, if he would have told you you had to go defeat the entire Hivite army before you could be healed. We would be on the way there now. And all he asked you to do was bathe. Why not just go bathe? Why not just go bathe? I believe Naaman was stunned by the honesty of the question. This is the, the impetus of the sermon, by the way. Why do we make salvation and serving so difficult? Religion places all sorts of demands for salvation and service without any security. Christ simply says, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Christ simply says, uh, trust me. Believe, you, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Trust me. Serve me. By this will others know that you're my disciples when you love one another. Greater love is no man than a man lay down his life for his friends. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Trust me. Serve me. But by and large, we prefer religion. Because religion gives us something to do wherein we might, we might share the spotlight with the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's already paid the bill. We could get up next to him and say, look what we've done, Lord. <laughs> Christianity says the glory is all his. We see, lastly, Naaman's cleansing. It's a moot point. Verse 14. 
He goes and dips seven times in the Jordan, and guess what? He's healed. He's cleansed. The question is so simple. It was like a drill bit in my brain about a week ago. Why don't you just do the simple things? I don't, I don't have to read the Bible in a day. I don't have to read a book a day. I don't have to read a book a month. I don't have to knock on every door in Jackson County. I don't have to lay down my life in some grotesque, martyrial fashion. I just have to be obedient. If I'm, if I'm lost, I've, I've never accepted Christ as my Savior. I don't have to have an amazing theoretical, theological understanding of the truths. I simply have to repent of my unbelief. Do you know what that looks like? That looks like this. There is a God, and I'm not Him. If I'm, if I'm born again, and I'm serving in the church but I'm struggling in life. I don't, I don't have to quit my job and be in the sacrificial full-time ministry. I just have to be obedient. It's the simple things. It's the little thing the servant said. Man, what are you doing? Just go bathe, for goodness sakes, and you'll be clean. The question that I would ask you this morning, as you stand with me, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Very simple. Have you been obedient to the Word of God? See, you don't owe me an answer for that, but you owe yourself and the Lord one. Have I been obedient to the word of God for salvation? Have I repented of my unbelief and believed the gospel? There's life in that. For service. Am I serving as God has instructed me to serve? Obedience leads to salvation. Obedience leads to healing. Obedience leads to wholeness. Obedience leads to love. Obedience leads to joy. Obedience leads to peace. Obedience leads to long-suffering. Obedience leads to gentleness. Obedience leads to faith. Obedience leads to meekness. Obedience leads to temperance. Obedience leads to fruitfulness. Have I been obedient to the Word of God? What say you this morning? The altar's open. Father, I pray you'd work in a special way today. Bless this time of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you?